You are listening to a sermon podcast from Kingdom City. We pray that over the next few moments, you will be blessed, equipped, and empowered to bring the reality of God to your world. All right, good morning, church. So good to see you today. Let's all stand. We're going to pray together. Welcome to church again. Who's ready for the Word of God? Oh, that's good. I know I'm speaking to the right people. So Lord, thank you for the life and the liberty and the release of your Spirit. We pray for veils to come off the eyes of our heart that we might see with the eyes of faith all that you've declared over our lives. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in and through our lives. In Jesus' Name, Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Good morning again. It's so good to be here. I've uh, been travelling in India for the last uh, 10 or so days, and it's so good to be in worship. I love their music, but just a drum hammering away (laughs) is sometimes a little bit monotonous to my ears, so it's so good to be back again. So uh, as no doubt you're aware, or hopefully you're aware, we're in all of our campuses in a series of messages on revival in our finances. And uh, that's certainly something I want to zero in today. And, you know, I've noticed that when we talk about finances in church, there's just this bit of a tension, maybe a bit of resistance, because some people are thinking, well, I would have thought we should be talking about more spiritual things. Uh, than finance in church. Well, I want to say tell God about that because did you know that God talks about giving and generosity and finance more than any other topic in the Bible? 2,285 times God refers to giving, generosity and finance. So we're going to discover Uh, why that is, and we're going to be looking to God for a principle that I wanted to share with you uh, about uh, revival in our finances. You're looking at somebody that has experienced a revival in their finances. Uh, I'm speaking from an experience, a breakthrough moment. I had to realise that in my thinking, I had a stronghold, a mentality. Let me, let me describe to you what a stronghold is. A stronghold. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that causes us to accept as unchangeable something that we know is contrary to the will of God. A mindset that will cause us to downgrade the truth of the Bible to the level of our own reality. There could well be strongholds in thinking here this morning. So as I'm speaking, I'm doing more than just giving a message. I'm actually in my heart seeking to set you free from the grip of something that is acting in your life to inhibit the supernatural flow of finance in your life. You see, when we are lacking in this area, there's so much of the will of God we can't do. We can't love our neighbour as God intended us to do it if we're lacking in the area of finance because according to Jesus, 
Loving our neighbour means we need to be able to pay their hospital bills like the Good Samaritan did and uh, to be able to bless uh, our neighbour who's been made redundant in their job and can no longer uh, pay their rent and we can, we can pay medical bills. We can help that single mother whose car's broken down. She needs a new one. There's so many ways that Christ has commanded us to love one another that involves the ability to have have the abundance to actually do it. And so I know in my own life, I had to be set free, breaking these strongholds of thinking where I had downgraded the truth of God to the level of my own reality. And if that's you this morning, then I'm praying in my heart right now that something breaks loose in your life and you have a revival in your finances. So as I'm speaking, I'm re- I want to see uh, this as me releasing truth over you to actually bring about a revival in your heart. You know, God is good. God is good. And the manifestation of God's goodness towards us is that we thrive and prosper. You can't keep singing God is good and think that that can still mean your life should be struggling and in lack. It's just not possible. In John 15, Jesus told us that He is our vine, listen, and that you are His branch. And by using this metaphor, there's no way we can see it any other way that He was telling us, I am your supernatural supply. I am your supernatural supply for everything that you need to be fruitful in life. What else would He use that a metaphor to employ other than that? The vine brings to the branch everything that it needs to be fruitful. I said, he doesn't expect the branch to have intrinsically in itself the ability to be fruitful. But he does say to the branch, to you and to me, I'm going to bring that to you. The people you need to meet, the doors you need to open, the opportunities you need to have, I, your vine, will bring that to you. I will not say over your life, I want you to do this and do that and be this person and go there without giving you the supply to make it happen. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be your vine. So as I'm speaking, let faith rise in your heart to embrace that truth. God does not declare, I love you, and then abandons us to struggle through life on our own. That's a nonsense. Uh, So before you were even born, God foreknew. Did you know this? God foreknew. Everything that you are going to face in life, and he made provision for you to overcome it. Wow, yes, wow. Listen to this, Second Peter, everything you could ever need for life and godliness has already been deposited in you by his divine power. Oh, yeah. For all this was lavished upon us through the rich experience of knowing Him who has called us by His name and invited us to come to Him through a glorious manifestation of His goodness. Jesus told us a thief 
has only one thing in mind. He wants to steal, slaughter and destroy. But I have come. I've come to give you everything in abundance. This is your Jesus speaking to you. More than you expect, life in its fullness until you overflow. No, we haven't got an eyedropper God. I just, just enough sort of a God. God's invested in you overflowing, overflowing. So no, make no mistake, revival in our finances is part of the abundance that Jesus is referring uh, to here. So in particular this morning, I want to speak to you about how to have, how to have a revival in your finances. And so I'm going to ring, read out a, a string of Bible quotes and then I'm actually going to point out to you uh, why I'm reading them and what they actually all have in common. Some of them you'll recognise where it says, My cup runs over. Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life that I will be the head and not the tail. I'll be above and not beneath. The person who delights in the word of the Lord and meditates in it shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season, whose leaf will not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. So all of these Bible promises about increase, but in particular, here it is, in particular, they are seeking to engage the eyes of our heart to give us a visual picture of what the promise fulfilled looks like, a cup that runs over, walking into every kind of circumstance and yet I'm walking into it with goodness and mercy following me. I, I start, yes, in the low position, but God will always lift me up to be the head and not the tail. These are all images of God's promises fulfilled that God is wanting us to visualise in our hearts before it actually comes to pass. And perhaps the classic example of somebody intentionally engaging with the imagery of a promise that God had given them is, is Jacob in Genesis, Genesis 30, 31. Jacob was being cheated out of his wages by his father-in-law Laban. And so God came to him and said, listen, I'm going to see to it that you are paid your due in abundance. You're going to have a revival in your finances. And here's what God said, out of a flock of all, let's say, white goats, I'm going to cause all these spotted and speckled babies to be born, which was generically hard, all right? But that was going to be his payment. They didn't get paid in money then. Goats were as good as a 100 bucks maybe. I don't know. Um, so, but in, listen, in response to what God had promised him, Jacob made something. 
It was for himself. He made something to help him visualise its fulfilment. He took these branches and peeled off the bark and and made uh, dots and stripes and he put it in front of the goats whenever they were breeding and sure enough, the goats started giving birth to spotted and speckled babies. Now listen, there was no power in the branches, okay? I've read some pretty far out commentaries on this verse that the sap seeping into the water trough was, uh, you know, an aphrodisiac or something that caused this, wow, some pretty far out stuff. No, he just did it for himself. The power was in the promise of God, but he wanted something to help him overcome his doubts in that promise. So he made something that just pushed him over the edge and he helped himself believe that something that seemed like impossible could actually happen. The branches were for Jacob's benefit. Another example in the Bible where they used a visual aid to connect their faith with a promise of God was the bronze serpent that they they made and lifted up on a pole in Numbers 21. And and we're told that those who looked at it were healed. And and even today, uh, this is a symbol of healing among the medical profession, the bronze serpent, the the present-day Eastern Orthodox. Well, I had to practice that because of my lisp, because what I really wanted to say, Eastern Orthodox, So, man, I worked on that. All right, there was a clapping moment right there. Come on. Whoa, whoa. (laughs) The present Eastern Orthodox, don't push it, David, you got it right, is big time into icons. If you know anything about them, they're big time into icons to help them visually connect with the promises of God. Now, they're not thinking the icon has any supernatural power. It's their way. They're using them in the same way that when you pray and hold a photograph of your family and and begin to pray over your children and your wife or your husband, remembering the promises that God has made uh, to you, the prophecies that have been given, you're using that photo as a way of really connecting with that, that faith moment. So here's my point. I believe there is a key here for those of us who want to have revival in our finances and a revival in any area of our life uh, for that matter. So let's, let's break this down. When we refer to the Word of God, uh, <clears throat> and I've given you some examples of, of where this is an actual fact, we're not actually talking about the literal grammatical Word. We're talking about the image that rises in your heart when you hear the word spoken. You don't form a belief by repeating a word over and over. You form a belief by seeing an image in your heart over and over. So our faith decorations are not about getting our grammatical words pronounced right. It's the image that rises in our heart again and again as we say the word. That's where the power is. And so I put it to you that a powerful way to move 
the fulfillment of God's yet to be seen promises into your experience is first seeing its fulfillment in, with the eyes of your heart. This is what the Bible means when it says we should confess with our mouth and believe in our heart. That what's coming out of your mouth is registering in a corresponding way to the image that you have in your heart. And so here's what's really going on. God is speaking his word over you to establish the image of his truth inside you and thereby dislodge the lying false images that you have presently been giving your faith to. He's wanting to topple them. He's wanting to knock them off the throne that you've exalted these images, these strongholds that you have. He's wanting to bring them down by establishing His image of truth for your life. And He's doing this because God knows that until the images inside you change, nothing is going to change. You can say what you like with your mouth. The images in your heart will win every time. Every time. Your marriage is not going to get better until you stop seeing yourself happier in the arms of someone else. It's not going to happen. You can say all you like. But until that image changes, your fear isn't leaving until you start seeing the love of God in the form of your shepherd, the Lord being my shepherd, loving me, guiding me, providing for me, protecting me. That's the image you need to have. Your finances are not going to improve until you stop seeing yourself striving, struggling with just enough to get by to pay the bills. Until the images inside you change, nothing it's going to change because the images you believe in your heart will win over your head every time. And this is why we need to, 2 Corinthians 10, cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. These imaginations need to be cast down because they're actually working in you to create a lifestyle contrary to God's Word. And, and so um, I can understand that when we start talking about imagination in church, that some people get nervous because it's been hijacked and ripped out of the hands of godly people by the new age. Did you realise that the devil only bothers to counterfeit things that are valuable and powerful? You don't counterfeit a $1 coin. If you're going for it, you're going to go after the 50s and the $100 bills. If you're going to do it, let's go for the high value stuff. And so we're in danger of forsaking a truth uh, because it's being counterfeited uh, by the enemy. So whenever we start talking about this ability to image things in our hearts, we need to be careful that we're not surrendering a powerful key 
that God has intended for us to sanctify for godly use. All right. So where did we get this creative ability with our imagination? We got it from God. First uh, Corinthians one twenty six. God said, "Let us make man in our likeness and image." And so, is our ability to imagine things inside ourselves given by God? Is it a God likeness thing? Yes, absolutely, it is. How did God create this world? Some would say uh, that He created it purely by His spoken word. Well, actually, two things were happening. First, he imaged what he wanted and then he spoke the word. God was not creating like this. Let there be a tree. Oh, is that what a tree looks like? Uh, Let there be a fish. Oh, he opens his eyes to look to see what a fish looks like. No, of course, he began with an image and he spoke the word. He spoke the word. These two working together uh, inside of us. So our creative imagination is God-given. And so great is its power that on the two occasions we read in the Old Testament where God had to intervene in human history, the, the problem was an unsanctified use of creative imagination. Uh, Genesis 6, 5, every intention of the thought of their heart. This is what caused God to intervene with the flood. It was this, that united across all humanity, there was this uh, alignment of thoughts in their heart that were evil continually. And then uh, the Tower of Babel, we're told in Genesis eleven six, nothing they have imagined to do is to be withheld, will be withheld from them. So God had to intervene with the scattering of the nations. So such is the power of the human imagination that when whole nations and this still happens sadly today, when whole nations get their heart visualization in unity against the purposes of God, he uh, steps in to abort the creative process. Let, let me give you an illustration of, of how this can come about. There's, there's a lot about my high school years that um, I can't remember what I was taught. How about you? I mean, we sat there for years and years, but I can't remember too much of what was actually said. But I can remember my science teacher, Mr. Last, getting up in front of the class with an iron bar and a magnet and a beaker full of iron filings. And he he grabbed the iron bar, he shoved it in the iron filings, he pulled it out, no iron filings stuck to the bar. He grabbed the magnet. He began to stroke the iron bar in the same direction over and over and over and over again. He put the magnet aside and then picked up the bar, put it in the beaker and pulled it out and all the iron filings were now attracted. The iron bar had now taken on, listen, had now taken on the characteristics of the magnet. There was a transference that it too was now doing or drawing to itself what the magnet uh, was drawing. Uh, Okay, so what's going on here? When your heart has a thought image 
passed over it again and again and again, your heart starts to get, your chaotic thinking starts to come into alignment with that image until in the end your heart is magnetised to draw to yourself people and experiences that line up with that image in your heart. You're now magnetised. Some people, sadly, who've got images and thoughts of rejection and hopelessness and frustration and cannot, I cannot, I cannot. And now, sure enough, people's situations are treating them a certain way because their life is now repelling certain things and attracting certain things. And so... The images that you hold in your heart draw experience. Now, God wants you to sanctify your imagination. He wants to take it back the way the enemies used it to mess with your life and curse you with it. Something He intended to be beautiful in your life. God's saying, sanctify, set it apart, this beautiful ability that I've given you because the images of your heart become the reality you live in. And God knows this about your imagination. Our directed, guided, focused imagination forms the bridging link between the supernatural realm of the spirit realm and our personal lives. God knows that. He knows how critical this is that we get it right. So does the Word of God support what I'm saying about the creative power of our directed imagination? Well, Jesus put it this way, whatever things you desire, wow, well, you try having a desire without having an image. Do you think it's the word D-E-S-I-R-E that you're meant to be having? No, desire is a picture. Whatever things you desire when you pray, believe you receive and you will have them. He said it another way, Matthew 12, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart. What do you think that is? Images. Brings out good things. But it works the other way. This is a generic principle like gravity. It can curse you, it can kill you, or it can be a great blessing. And an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in him. What's he telling us? The good and the bad that comes out of you originates from the good and bad images that you've stored up in your heart. James 1, 14. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James is liking this whole process to a pregnancy and the hidden imagination of the heart, conceiving a desire that grows until it eventually is birthed into the physical realm. But God intends us to use our sanctified imagination to bring His will into our lives. That's why it says in Proverbs that you should keep your heart, keep your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it will flow the issues of life. Are you keeping your heart? 
Are you keeping your heart with all diligence? What are you harboring? What images are you harboring in your heart? So, okay, I think that the Bible verse that says it best, for me at least, is, is Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. By faith, we understand that the world's were framed by the Word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Whoa. Wow. Well, what is your hope? Will you try having a hope without an image? Your hope that you have of your future is an image you have We're not going to call it a wish because the Bible doesn't refer to it as wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation of something that God has promised you. It's a hope. It's an image. It's like Jacob. It's like the brazen serpent. It's like all those cup running over things that we referred to earlier. It's your heart image of something that you believe God wants you to have in your future. And so what we're being told here is that our faith moves, our faith gives substance to those things that are unseen and it brings them from that realm into the the seen realm. So these things actually exist. Here's what we've got to understand. When God promises you something, it's actually existing. In God speaks of things that are not as though they were. You know why? Because to him they are. And they are, they're yet to move from that realm. That's why Jesus meant, pray this way, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is, as it is. In heaven. What's he trying to do? Come on, use your faith to get it to move from there to heaven. God wants to partner with you in bringing his kingdom uh, to earth. So this is important because some people think we're using our faith to try and make something that is not real become real. No, we're using our faith to make something that is unseen become seen. That's what we're doing. That's what we're actually employing our faith to do. So what is our faith doing? It's moving the the will of God, the unseen will of God into the physical realm. Jesus was telling us to do that when he taught us to pray that way. And what are we meant to do while there is still a contradiction between what God has promised and what's actually circumstantially happening, we are meant to live by faith and not by what we see. So faith doesn't deny there is a problem. Faith just says, yes, this is a lesser truth, but there's a greater truth that this lesser truth must give way to. Yes, this is my present circumstantial lesser truth, but I declare, decree, I by faith see the greater truth that supersedes the lesser truth of my circumstance. 
And so what does the Bible call these unseen realities of God's will that we're drawing down by faith? It calls them our hope. Faith is giving substance to the things we hope for. So, so what we're learning here is a very practical way of how to exercise our faith. If you don't have a hope in your heart, a picture of God's will uh, in your heart when you pray, then your listen, your faith has nothing to give substance to. It's, it's like a car that can't get traction. It just keeps spinning its wheels, revving, revving, revving faith, faith without a hope. Can't, it can't give substance. It's like a hovering bird with nowhere to land. We often put the emphasis on faith, but I'm telling you, your hope. You can't really have effective faith without a hope. Your faith is giving substance to things hoped for. This is what uh, uh, the apostle is praying for in, in Ephesians. He says that, that the light of your eyes uh, would be enlightened so that you will understand the hope. Now, in biblical language, that's an imagery. The hope to which he has called you, the glorious riches of your inheritance, etc. When you shut your eyes to pray, you're meant to be seeing more than the back of your eyelids. You're shutting your eyes to block out what is seen so you can see that which is unseen more clearly without distraction. That's why you're doing it. You're looking at your hope and you're putting your faith on that hope and you're drawing it into the realm of substance. In order for your faith to be effective, it needs a hope, a heart picture. And that's why Jacob did what he did. He needed that. He, he needed He needed a little bit of help. He did that. God never told him to do it, but he did it in the same way we would hold out a photograph of our kids that we've dedicated and had prophecies over and yet they're wayward and backslidden right now. And we're looking at their photograph and we're declaring for them to come home. God, you spoke your word over them. We're actually holding up that photograph to actually declare it's helping us. In that, in that moment. See, you were a hope in my heart long before you ever turned up here. Long when I was just a, a, a recovering hippie that God had, was transforming, um, I started to pray and get images of myself doing what I'm doing now. At first, I didn't understand that this was God showing me a hope. This is your destiny, David. This is what, and I, and I didn't understand. It. I thought it was my ego. I'd push it away. But God was holding out to me a hope, and now here I am doing it. The hope has become substance. Now I have to go and get another hope because this one's become substance. That's all right. That's how how it works. And this is why we're told to hold fast the confession of our hope. Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So I'm saying to you, don't just tell me you want to have a revival in your finances. What does that look like? 
What does that look like? Don't think it's magical words coming out of your mouth. It's meant to stir an image in your heart when you say, don't just tell me you want to be healed. Or what is you being healed? Picking up your child without pain. What does it look like? Does it look like you're running, skipping, doing stuff without pain? That's the image that you need to hold in your heart. So the strength of your faith depends on how much hope you have. And how much hope you have depends on your God-given future that you, you can see. And it works like a magnet. It works like a magnet, that hope, just pulling that into reality. But here's the strange thing. Just like your hope that God is giving you of your future has a magnetism, so your past has a magnet too. And here explains the strange thing that we watch happens to some people who, who encounter God, have a real true experience with God, but somehow their hope begins to diminish their, their God-given picture, the promises start to diminish and they start to feel the magnetism of their past pulling them back. Because the hope that they had in their heart towards God is being diminished, diminished the, the magnetism to go back to their past is starting to take over. And as a pastor for so many years, I've seen it happen again and again. When people start to lose their hope in God, they start getting drawn back into their past. Is it any wonder then that the enemy doesn't actually attack your faith, he attacks your hope? Because he knows if he can, he can diminish your hope, he doesn't need to send you anywhere. Automatically, you will find yourself being drawn back to your past. And so that's why this morning I'm here to tell you, come on. Hope in God. Hope in God. I'm going to ask the singers and musicians to come back and help me. Look at this beautiful verse. It says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. And then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love who God is for everybody in this room right now. He's the God of hope. Your present situation is not final. There's hope, hope, hope in God. But look, in the natural that might be possible, but here's the cool thing. God, with God, all things are possible. Don't you give up hope. God has given promises over your life. Your present situation is not final because God is faithful. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, we want you to know that He loves you very much. So much that He died on the cross for all of your sins that stood between you and God. If you would like to make a decision to follow Jesus today, all you need to do is to repeat this prayer. Dear God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I admit that I'm not right with you and I want to be right with you. I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. I believe with my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus 
is the Lord and Savior of my life. Thank you for saving me and making me your child. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, or if God has done anything in your life because of this podcast, we would love to know. Email us at testimony at kingdomcity.com.